should find a way to harmonize there, like a barbershop. I thought quartet. we were about to barbershop quartet that. Actually. I was, I yeah. Was just I, was gonna, I was gonna put out just a, a real soft C and see where everybody follows along because that's how we usually start these things out. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Ones Ready Podcast. You got the whole team with you. Our friend Kyle came to sit down and talk about a myriad of subjects, some of which we had to uh, say before we recorded because they were not fit for human consumption. But here we are. So welcome back. Thanks for following, liking, subscribing to everything that we do. Our friend Kyle Pettit, Air Force veteran, real estate mogul, I'd like to say. I don't know how, like, the terms work in the real estate world, if I'm allowed to say mogul, but I assume you're on the same level as Donald Trump for how good you are at real estate, just on a smaller scale in Colorado Springs. So Kyle, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. (laughs) Yeah, man, we really appreciate it. So for everybody out there, Kyle was in the Air Force before. We just talked. He spent seven years at Cannon. So he's in the Cannon Recovery Group, and we're going to talk about how he's getting through that. But Kyle, just do us a favor and, and hit us off with the background. Let us know uh, you know, who you are and, and how you came. You know, Most importantly, what, what was the decision matrix like of you getting into the Air Force? Oh, yeah, that's a really easy one. I mean, my parents, I grew up in the military. Both my parents were in the Air Force. Uh, my mom was public affairs. My dad was a paralegal. So I grew up in that my whole life. Um, And so I knew from like a super young age that I was going to join the military. 9-11 happened. You know, it solidifies that. I think I was in sixth grade uh, around the time of 9-11. So there was like no doubt ever in my mind. It was kind of just like, what was I going to do? And then as I was getting ready to graduate high school, got an ROTC scholarship, went out to Brigham Young University. um, did that whole thing, uh, took a break in there, served a mission in Portugal. I was uh, raised LDS mm-hmm. and then uh, came back, finished up that. And that I think there was an interesting point there because I wasn't really that excited about the Air Force, if I'm being totally honest. Uh, I, I think I originally wanted to be like an eye doctor, but then I went to college and realized school was way harder than um, high school was. And I was not that good at it. So uh I didn't really care about aviation. I thought it was boring and dumb. And I was like, why would I just want to drive a bus? Right. Like I don't like driving that much. Um, I ended up anyway, going to flight school as a combat systems officer, uh, went to flight school and here in Pueblo, you go to initial flight training. Um, and that was, I remember like sitting down on day one during the intros and listening to some of these pilots talk. And then when we started academics, I was just like, it was like fire hose, but like in the best way, I was super excited about it and realized that I actually really had like a passion for aviation um, and super, super loved it. So anyway, ended up going back down to Pensacola for UCT undergraduate CISO training. And then uh, kind of the rest is history out of there, dropped gunships out of there and then um, spent the rest of my life at Canon. That's, that's awesome. So you, uh, you know, getting through pilot training or not, you know, through IFT and and whatever else, I'm sure that there were a crap ton of challenges. Did you ever kind of, you know, waver in that, you know, uh, sort of desire to go into, uh, you know, the career field and and start working for the air force? Cause it sounds like you were pretty, pretty well set, you know, grow up and growing up in that environment and having parents that were, were, you know, prior air force and then, you know, getting in and getting the fire hose of information and being excited about it. How did that actually shape you going through those hard times in flight school? You know, interestingly enough, I don't think I, honestly, I don't think I really did waver in the decision. I think if I wavered in any part of the decision, I had a, 
my intention was not to be a combat systems officer or a CISO. Mm -hmm. That was not my intention, uh, especially once I decided like, oh, aviation is dope. I really, really enjoy this. Uh, at that point, it was like, how can I go from like CISO training to pilot training? Because nobody knows what a CISO is. It's so annoying. Sure. Right. Everybody well, what, thinks what pilots are these magical what beings. What is a CISO? Like, I'm, I'm asking for a friend. It's me. Okay, I'm a friend. A I don't know what CISO, a CISO does. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so a CISO kind of breaks up in three categories. It's electronic warfare officers, navigators, and weapon systems officers. And then there's a CISO. So all CISOs are those things. But pi so like the easiest way is you have a like Top Gun, right? Maverick and Goose. I'm Maverick's familiar, right? Those guys, those guys are in the Navy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard of it. So that's yeah. actually NFO. Anyway, so <laughs> it's like that backseater. It's the guy that does really all the work in the jet and the pilot just flies the bus. Got it. Got yeah, it. we Makes fly sense. on all kinds of aircraft. So for educational purposes, um, obviously AC-130s, hello. Um, F-15s, B-1s, uh, EC-130s. RC-135s have a ton of like electronic warfare officers, um, B-52s. So it's kind of like so those goose. heavy aircraft. What'd you say? Your goose. We just yeah. figured it out. That's yeah, for sure. <laughs> totally. Like, yeah. Yeah, thank, thanks. Totally. Appreciate that. You're totally <laughs> goose. Yeah. Canopy. Sorry. I can't believe a canopy took you down. So. As you get out of, uh, you know, you get out of training and you hit your first duty station over at Cannon, you really start doing, it, it's sort of the fulfillment of what you got in to do. So you went from, you know, growing up in, in the Air Force family and then you, you, you know, obviously 9-11, you know, changed your worldview as it did all of us here. You know, all of us are GWAP bros. So we all, we all understand that. And you finally get to Cannon. How long was it from the time that you got to Cannon until you finally got to go out the door and, and do the job that you got in to do? Yeah, so when I got to Canon in twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen, the beginning of twenty fifteen, um, it was an interesting time because ISIS had pretty much just like hit its peak, right? I think yeah. like that year before, and when that happened, pretty much our entire the entire gunship community out of Canon deployed. And so when I got there, you know, I did Sear, and then I was there. That's where our schoolhouse is for gunships, uh, at least for the model that I was flying on. So it was a wild time because there was like nobody there. There was like two instructors and then like all these students, you know, we just kept showing up. So we had, we had a pretty long backlog. I remember sitting for like six months, not doing anything except like we do a lot of op four stuff for the training sorties and go out to Melrose range and do all that kind of stuff. Um, and then training, I think took about six months ish. Uh, I actually, I guess, uh, I don't know if you call it graduated. I don't know. I had my check ride. It was actually on my little brother's birthday. So it was January 11th of 2016. And then I ended up deploying about four or five months later after that, my first deployment. Um, at the time we were flying out of Turkey and then we were doing ops in Syria. So in the gunship community, at that time, there was only two gunship squadrons. Now there's four. There's probably going to be two again soon. But at that time, the way that we kind of broke up the AORs was the 16th or the Spectre gunship, which was the AC-130 Whiskey. Uh, we pretty much had all of OIR, so Iraq and Syria. And then the 4th, which is out of Florida, that was the uh, U models at the time. 
they were basically doing everything in Afghanistan. So pretty much my entire career until the very end uh, during the withdrawal was pretty much all OIR. So um, yeah, it was that summer of 2016, got out of my first rotation. Thanks. So, so you got over there on your first deployment. How many of the stories from the instructors t- turned out to be like utter nonsense? Just like self-aggrandizing, like over-the-top stories from instructors that you got there and you're like, this isn't like what they said it was going to be like at all. Um, not that many, if I'm being honest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, the gunship community. I mean, I would say the only time that we really experienced that was like when you were hearing stories from Afghanistan, because the fight in Afghanistan was totally different and just the way that the way that we employed and the threat picture and just everything was so different than this fight with ISIS. Um, and so I, I actually really, generally speaking, I thought that when, you know, when I was a student, when I was growing up in the gunship and, and getting my whereabouts, the training was really freaking hard. Um, the scenarios that we would do, you know, we do uh, dry fires. I don't know if the audience knows what that is, but you go play pretend war and you have these scenarios as, as if you were doing a direct action mission or, you know, whatever it is. And uh, of course they're like super, super, super complicated. Um, but it's kind of like, obviously it's like throwing the whole kitchen sink at you. So when you were there, did that really happen? No, but I, but I never felt like uh, the instructors were just like full of shit, you know, giving us a bunch of stuff that was like totally irrelevant. Well, I assume most of your instructors had already been, you know, overseas in, in one of those theaters. And yeah. yeah, So it's one of those things where I know our students will be like, why are you guys so crazy about this stuff? And it's like training tends to get harder. The more combat vets you get back into the pipeline as instructors, (laughs) because we're like, we, we take all this stuff super seriously guys. And like, I think sometimes the students are like, I don't, this, it can't be that crazy. And then it, it all makes sense later on. I love it too. This the students are like, well, this, this, this scenario would never happen. You'd never take this much contact. There'd never be this much out for it. We're like, yeah, but what if there is, that's what we're training for, bro. What if it does get this complicated? Like, that's why we train this way. It's, I always likened it to weightlifting. Somebody's, you know, Hey, this, this set is going to be close to your max and you're going to have to do it for three reps. Be like, Oh, well, I mean, I'm never going to have to do like a max rep for, for three sets. Like, yeah, but I, yeah. that's the point you add extra stress in order to get past your hundred percent. Well, and I, I mean, to fast forward, like when I became an instructor, like now you're running these dry fire scenarios as the same thing happens for you guys. And half of my dry fire scenarios were either things that I had encountered or, you know, not every gunship mission is like this big heroic you're shooting. I mean, half, half the time you're just flying and watching, but you're still having the conversation as a crew of like, hey, you know, that you're watching what's happening and it's like, what if this plays out? And then you like kind of take this little note and you're like, man, I re- like I would say this all the time. I'm going to turn that into a scenario for students during upgrade when I get back because that would freaking suck. Additionally, do you guys know who Nick Lavery is? Yes. Nick Lavery, the green brain got his leg blown off. Yeah. You yeah, super. I did, yeah, I do why, know. Why did you get so excited? Yeah. Knows everyone. Because, yeah. because, yeah, yeah. Why did I get so His excited? Voice yeah. even got high pitched. Hey, <laughs> yeah, the coffee's kicking in. I've, you know, <laughs> I'm good. Shout out to Trench Coffee. Trent, <laughs> shout out to Trench. The boys out there are always getting peaches jazzed up. But so, so Nick, um, so Nick Lavery's story, I had heard it on you know a couple podcasts. I was super obsessed with his story. He's an absolute animal. Um, so for those who don't know. Uh, 
had a green on blue, got basically shot with a PKM, uh, took, ended up losing his leg. And then within 24 months was on a deployment again as a Green Beret. And he's gone on multiple deployments and he's an absolute animal. Anyway, he's got this Boston accent. It's so cool. And I, when I heard that story, I was like, man, that would be such a sucky scenario to get drawn into as a gunship. Like, you know, this green on blue that became a complex ambush from the mountains. And you're like, ah, that's not really like, no, this is his story. Listen to it. This is the scenario that we're going to fly tomorrow. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's drawn from real life scenarios or the potential for scenarios that could have happened while you were there, you know? And like when when you run into a scenario like that or, or whatever, the, the communication of your crew, like I want to talk about your relationship up there. Like it has to be crazy because you're trying to suss out friendlies from enemies. And like there's some mixtures going on in like that scenario specifically. So like, how is it with that, the AC 130 crew, you know, how tight are y'all and what are like the most important aspects to make the, that crew successful? That's such a good question. Um, so quick crew breakdown, uh, the way that it sits right now, the, the crew names are a little bit different, but basically you have your pilot and co-pilot, right? Sitting up front. And then you have two CISOs, um, a junior and a senior typically. And then you have uh, four, three or four enlisted gunners. Generally what's happening is the combat systems officers, what we're doing on the plane is, you know, yeah, we've got like the defensive systems and we do in-flight planning and fuel planning and stuff like that. But then like once you're in combat or you're entering into the combat environment, both CISOs are sitting in the back at this like super big Stephen Hawking, like computer station, super gaming. And you have, you both have a sensor. So one is on the nose and then one is right under the 30 mil. And so the, the senior of the two, which in the AC 130 J, which is the gunship flying everywhere today, uh, it's called the Wizzo, the weapon systems officer. So he's like, he or she is the one like running the show, honestly. That's the one talking to the JTAC. They, they do the bulk of the mission planning. Um, he's directing, you know, the, the younger CISO on what that person should be doing. So generally speaking, like it's pretty clear who is responsible for what. At the same time, the aircraft commander, right, who is ultimately in, you know, in charge of everything, uh, is the person coordinating and kind of has this, um, almost like this God's eye view of what's happening, right? Like that your pilot is like listening to ATC. They're listening to TACCOM. They're listening to the JTAC. They're listening on SAT. And they're kind of just like gathering all the pieces. So therein lies like a really, really important relationship because they're also trying to keep you safe. And they're trying to maneuver the aircraft in a way that like, you're not going to get shot down at least. So the relationship, first and foremost, the the most important relationship is that relationship between your WISO for AC-130Js, your, your senior and your senior. Um, and I've seen it play out both ways. I've, I've had good relationships and bad relationships, but when you deploy, you deploy on a hard crew. So you're with those same people for whatever it is, the three to the three to six months. Um, and it's really kind of this almost like mom and dad relationship, you know, which was, Full disclosure was, um, I thought was going to be pretty hard. Uh, I was super fortunate that the last trip that I went on, the pilot that I had was like really intelligent, really sharp, um, and a really good decision maker. And he was so good. I, I'd never seen any other pilot do this. He was so good at like bringing in your youngest gunner, right? I mean, your E3 and being like, hey, 
we're making a decision to go do this. How do you feel about it? So that was like when I saw it operating at its best, it was pulling input from everybody, if that makes sense. And then additionally, I think it really just speaks to you have to be a tactical expert. There's, you know, like the pilot is trusting that I know how to employ weapons and that I know which weapons to choose and that I know how to handle complex tactical scenarios because he or she just has this like little tiny monitor, right? Like they can see outside the plane, but they really just have this like little repeater so that they can see what's going on the ground. So they're really like trying to build this thing and watch this tiny screen and fly the airplane and they, they have a lot going on. So they're really relying on me or the whoever the Wizzo is at the time to be a tactical expert and to be competent so that really they just are doing a sanity check and it's not like they're the ones running it. But of course, yeah. you know, there's personality conflicts, you know, happen all the time, but uh, yeah. that's kind of the general flow there. And the last thing that I'll say actually is that younger, when, when you're hashing out duties. So I'll just say like, you know, I'm the Wizzo, I'm talking to the JTAC, I'm kind of running the mission and the younger CISO Generally speaking, especially if it's a DA, his or her job is 100% friendly management. So they are like from the time that we, that the helos pull in or the, or the vehicles or whatever it is, it is like dropping little points and tracking and constantly, no matter how boring or how long that is like all that person is doing so that we can react super quickly. And I can focus on a little bit being more offensive. Yeah, I think it was Dan Schilling in in the book uh, Alone at Dawn, you know, talking about the AC-130. It's the most friendly centric aircraft that we have. The only thing that they're doing is is just tracking where friendlies are. That's it. That's our whole life so that they can protect friendlies. Because if you know where the friendlies are, that means you you know where the bad guys are, right? If you know where the friendlies aren't, you know where you can shoot 100% of the time and, and the AC-130 does that. I just want to highlight something that you brought up when you were talking about bringing that young E3 in. You know, when, when teams operate at their best, when, when leaders bring in those young folks to say, hey, how do you, how do you feel about this? We, we get this a lot because people will ask us, hey, uh, you know, I, I want to have my opinion brought in. I want to be valued as a team member. People don't understand that the other side of that coin is you better hit a home run. If a leader, if a true leader brings you in and has that faith in you and you say something stupid or you give bad input or you're not the tactical expert, that can be as damaging to a team as a leader that doesn't listen to, it, to their subordinates. So you said it perfectly. I just wanted to kind of highlight there's always a give and take. There's a push and pull like good on that leader for bringing in the subordinate to say, hey, you know, young E3 junior gunner, we're going to do this. How do you feel about it? People forget, though, you got to be on your game because you have very few chances to step up in that role and go, well, I do feel good about it. And I'm going to here's my lane and I'm going to crush it inside of my lane. It was just a, a great story, the way that you told it, uh, that highlights there's always a push and pull to that leadership and and what you need to do as a subordinate. So that, that, that was really good input and good on that leader for doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I really loved the way that he did it because a lot of times it had to do with like crew duty day or whether we were going to accept certain risk, right? Like, and yeah, you want, you want these young guys to like know that they can speak up. I think one of the things that it did subconsciously is like from the very, very beginning, it taught them that their input was valuable. And like, look, I don't, I don't think any of us had unrealistic expectations because our crew positions are different, right? Like 
The gunners are not typically tactical experts. They're experts in these machines. They're essentially, um, you know, they're called special missions aviators. Uh, so they're kind of like dual hatting, like loadmaster. Now they're kind of triple hatting, like a little bit flight engineer, and they're operating these gun systems. But it taught them really, really early, like your input is valued or yeah, your input is valuable. And so like if something, if you start getting those hairs stand up on the back of your neck, bro, speak up. This is a safe place. And we don't expect you to be like have perfect knowledge. And in fact, sometimes it helped us reinforce, even if they did say something a little bit off the wall, you know, um, which rarely happened. We had super sharp gunners on that trip. But if it did happen, it caused us to like reassess and be like, wait, no, that's that's not right. So that's actually not a valid fear. And we're we're good. Well, that's that's one of the great things about like an, an AC-130 crew is just the amount of brains that are in there that are paying attention. So that whole crew, crew resource management is important, not just from a, an aspect of keeping the plane, the crew safe and doing, doing smart things, but also, uh, you know, the avoidance of any kind of fratricide or like, Hey, I didn't get that on the radio because it was just garbled or, you know, did you guys get that? And, and the, the flow of communications that, that you folks have up there is incredible. And it's, I mean, I can only speak from a, a special missions aviator from a from a helicopter standpoint, you know, because we have SMAs on on helicopters. But I mean, there is equal part input between the pilot, the co, the WIZO, the the SMA, the loadmaster. If you're on a, a normal C one thirty or C seventeen, that are that are having these conversations, like, hey, can we do this? Have we no kidding? Gotten enough sleep? But as simple as that, you know, Hey, we've been, we've been, you know, we, we talked to, um, voodoo a a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. about, you know, like they had been flying for 30 something hours and it's like, all right, we sure we could press this, take some go pills and we're, you know, let's do it. But, uh, maybe let's just get a nap, get a nap in. It's, it's silly and it sounds stupid, but it has saved lives. It has saved aircraft. Um, and it's an important relationship to have. So I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah, um, I, I want to revisit something just because from a, from a you know, you talked about using real life scenarios to things that have happened to, um, you know, really in, enhance training. Uh, like we do the same thing, like the, the Jays do the same thing with, with medical scenarios for me being a JTAC, we do the same thing, you know, multi-axis troops and contacts and it's crazy. Uh, how many of those kind of real world scenarios that were, I'm kind of, you know what, I feel like I'm double tapping a question here, really, <laughs> but how many of those real life scenarios did, did you guys implement in there? Um, and, and really, see, I got you, like, I got you. you get yep, what I'm saying? Let, let me put it like this. I would come home from deployment and I would open my zipper email, you know, a little secret email. And I would, I would literally pull uh product from downrange <laughs> and then I would just remove everything secret, change a bunch of call signs and then like change the maps and be like, okay, we're flying to Hereford or Lubbock or just staying right. over Clovis or going out to the range. So they were literally built exactly off of scenarios a lot of guys um a lot of just people in the community uh, keep some form of a journal you know um 
for me, it was, I, I kept it like at the end, you have your, like your flight log and all that stuff. And then I'd get home and, uh, super random, you know, I would fly multiple flags every deployment and I had like mine that, you know, bring one home, give it to mom. But what I like to do with those is I would actually write up like kind of a full, obviously unclassified, um, summary of like, what did this flag see and do? And that helped kind of cement in my mind, but then also turn around and be like, build scenarios and operate accordingly. And then like listening to podcasts like this, um, and or cleared hot or Sean Ryan show, you know, where these guys are telling their incredible war stories. I mean, that was how I found Nick Lavery. Nice. That was how I found Nick <laughs> Lavery. Um, and then built that scenario. And then yeah. of course, after action reports too, like you'll, you'll see AARs and then, uh, build scenarios off of that as well. Yeah. Uh, the flag things, uh, a big thing, like for JTAX, you know, Usually we get these. So, so for everybody that's out there, if you're not watching YouTube, I'm holding up a 105 shell um, because you know a lot of what's kind of cool about that. And just to get sentimental real quick is, um, you know, we get people that that die or get hurt uh, in troops and contacts, and you know, uh, it it means a lot from us to us on the ground whenever we have you know whether it's AC 130. Um, a 10, you know, whatever aircraft you want to call that, that helps us out and, you know, to, to come back and get something that, that smokes somebody that helped us get out of a tick is, is pretty awesome. So anyway, yeah, thought I'd share that. since you brought up the flag thing, <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, uh, you know, <laughs> I know we said we were going to do this, but there was once upon a time, a commander in AFSOC that put a total kibosh on that. And well, <laughs> li listen, I just, I, I have to bring it up because, um, I see it happening in Paycom right now. I, I, I mean, I'm not in Paycom nor have I ever been to Paycom, but I have friends that are there right now that are kind of posting some of the things that are, that seem to be happening that are kind of starting to crush morale or not even really crush morale, but it's like, it feels like it's reeling people in so hard. So there's, you know, stuff about, uh, morale shirts and, you know, whatever. And it's like, sometimes these little things I don't know how leaders get to this point where they just, they make this decision that like, you know what, this little thing that sparks joy for you, it doesn't spark joy for you anymore. No more, no more brass, no more, uh, no more little pen tab patches, no, you know, colored shirts, no call signs. Uh, you're going to be addressing people by, you know, rank and last name. And like, at some point, you know, I think, I think that their thought process a lot of the times is like, oh, well, if, you know, it's a slippery slope and if we clean up these little things, you know, it'll lead to, you know, more discipline and whatever. And I'm like, ah, uh, I don't think that's true. I don't think it's accurate. I think it just builds resentment. And I think uh, people are still going to try to do those things and they're going to do it in secret. You know, like I'm still going to call this guy by his first name when you're not around, but it's just like, I'm walking on pins and needles. So that, we, we no kidding. Um, it wasn't my crew, but we had a crew that policy came down. We had done an op with the task force over in Iraq and Syria, given them brass after like, you know, we had all conglomerated together. They had the detainee passed them some brass and then it came down like a super hammer. And I'm not kidding you. They were ordered to gen up a sortie fly to the ETF's base 
pick up the brass. <laughs> like in combat. J- yeah, this is, yeah. you can't make this up. This is why yeah. I had to bring it up because it was like, it became so, like, that is so dumb. We're going to gen up a sortie, go fly in a combat environment where there is threat just to go up there, land, get that brass back. Like, what? So, anyway. Uh, yeah. So, I, hold yeah, on I, to that piece of yeah. 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 I'm, I'm going with you. I, you know, it's, you, you brought it up. So, um, Oh no! So I even I even te- I even text you know like we said we will Aaron Trent and I will text back and forth just to make sure that we don't jump on each other here. But I, I even text I was like oh here we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the the slippery slope fallacy, right? Oh, um, it there are and this is. I guess there are both sides to it, right? There's there's one side is you got the broken window theory, where it's like, hey, we're just going to clean everything up. It's going to be extremely uh, strict, and you know, it's the the Rudy Giuliani of New York. We're going to clean it up. It is undeniable that New York got cleaned up after Rudy Giuliani, right? However, um, I also think that morale shirts, morale patches, or whatever it is, is not a broken window kind of thing. Right. It is yeah. like handing out one five shells after dude's gotten a tick and lives were lost. And like, that's, that's not a broken window thing. That is not a, a war trophy that, that is a, and, and I think, I think, I think leadership can f- get detached and, and I'll, and I'll say that because you know, you go up to a staff, you know, whether it's AFSOC or SOCOM or something like that, and you go up to a staff and you sometimes, not everybody, but you can sometimes lose your mind because you forget that one, now that you have, you've gone and kind of separated yourself, taken yourself out of that operational grind, you kind of, and, and you get some rest and all that kind of stuff. You kind of look back and and you can not saying I did, but I'm just saying you can forget what it was like, and you start from your ivory tower just picking things apart, and you forget like there are folks in the trenches freaking just getting it after it, making sure that the mission is successful, giving their absolute everything, working 18 hour days to make sure that that sortie goes, or that these PJs or JTACs or whatever are trained to step out the door, you forget all the work and, and effort and lack of family time and trip after trip after trip to make sure that we are ready to go. And you, for, you can, like I said, I'm not saying I forgot it, you know, cause <laughs> I would never do that. Present company excluded. The <laughs> yeah. chief is clean on this. Yeah. One. I'm clean, but you forget and, and you forget what it was like, or maybe you just missed the boat. So you're fucking pissed about it. I don't know. I, I think, you uh, know what I think? Yeah, I, I think CZ, Kyle, I'll turn it over to you here in a second, but I think CZ, I think this is his quote, and I think he like distilled it down. Um, it was either him or, or somebody else that attributed it to him, but he said, uh, you know, if it matters to the team, if it matters to the bros, it matters. And I don't know what happens at that mm-hmm. 04, E9 sort of lobotomy area where people forget, but they look at things that matter to people, like the, the 105 shells, the given, you know, the morale shirts, those little things, they matter to the teams. Like 
okay, the short sleeve rugby shirt was like the biggest scandal in the two, four Sal for like two years, right? Like God forbid you're in the Philippines at 110 degrees and hundred percent humidity. And you put on a short sleeve rugby shirt for training one day. Cause God forbid if a picture on a sit rep ever had a short sleeve rugby shirt on, it was like the world fell down be like, you, you just forget. And you know, if it matters to the team, if it matters to the people on the ground, then it actually matters. It's not a slippery slope. It's not a, a lack of discipline. It's not all, if I can't trust you with a haircut, I can't trust you on target. No, oh maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's that. just because my hair got a little bit long. Maybe I'm not a POS, you know, like there's, there's a fine line there. And I don't know what happens at that. Oh, four. I, I don't know what school all majors and all chiefs go to where they collectively <laughs> forget. But the second that you're an op soup and a DO, it's like, nah, man, you, you've forgotten what it, you know, what happens in the team rooms, but. Kyle, go ahead. Sorry for well, what's interesting is like in a gunship community, um, this is actually something really, really cool about a gunship community is that uh, that disconnect, I think, happens way later uh, because, you know, we have O4s shoot on that last mm, on my fourth deployment. Um, there was a lieutenant colonel who was a crew dog, right? Like nice. that doesn't happen really like anywhere else. I mean, it's but it's super common. O3s, O4s and the occasional 05 as a crew dog, which is pretty wild. Um, you know, Peaches, what, what I was thinking about when you were saying that, um, I think sometimes the disconnect, and look, I get it. It's, you know, you're trying to make sure that the organization doesn't collapse or that a big event doesn't happen because what happens if something does is then everybody comes back and they're like, well, I mean, you guys don't even have mustache and rags. Like, what are, what are these people? What are they embossing their boots properly? So, like, clearly, that is what led to this mishap. And you're like, well, no. But, well, did it, though? <laughs> but did it? So, yeah. here's the thing is, but one of the major, and now this goes both ways, in all fairness, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I've also had phenomenal leaders. But I... I think that one thing that just humans in general forget, whether it's leadership looking at subordinates or subordinates looking at leadership, is the general assumption that usually most times or almost all times, that person is actually trying their best or they're actually, they actually have good intentions or they're actually not trying to have a mishap or like a bad thing happen, right? And I think that is like often forgotten that like, Hey, these guys, yeah, maybe they're goofing around or whatever. But like, when it comes to the mission, like they're not, they get it. Like my, your young PJs, they get it. Our young scissors, like they get it. They just might have a different personality. And that's something that I see conflict a lot is like, well, you don't fit this personality mold. And so there, you know, there can be a lot of conflict there. Um, but I, the slippery slope thing, Mm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. well it, it's mm-hmm. you know and, and i'm i'm actually glad you said that kyle because i i do think that it's so easy to sit back and just you know leadership is this leadership is that they're they're out to get us that sure are there a few that are prob that probably are yeah, oh, yeah. i mean c- c- you know but the but the majority i would say are not out they're just like you know, they have, they have their background, they have their certain, you know, things and, and it's, it's not malicious, right. But it's, but when you start equating it to, you know, the slippery slope or or something like that, I I think that's where it starts to go. Yeah. 
you know, I, I don't know, but I, you know, so Aaron with, with the rugby shirts, completely agree. Those, those were, that was a ridiculous thing. And every sit rep, you know, every but, single time it but, came out, like people would, yeah. I got, I got yelled at over the phone on a thing they, he wasn't even my guy. That's the most, the most frustrating one of my life. Yeah. We put out a sit rep. That. We were, we were working with a different team. It was a, it was a completely different dude. And I got straight, like, a grown man raised his voice at me over the phone because of another team's dude that was like instructing and he had sunglasses on his head and he had a rugby shirt on yeah. and I got yelled at over it. Yeah. I was dumbfounded. I was like, first of all, mind your tone. Second of all, it's not my guy. Like he was teaching like, what, what do you want me to tell you? Like that was a completely different unit. It wasn't even an ST guy. It was, it was yeah. like a, a seer guy from a different unit. They were like, how dare you? I was like, what are we talking about here? Yeah. <laughs> like I said, people uh. lose their minds, but uh, you know, but with that, like, yeah, the rugby shirt thing was ridiculous. But if you show up with fucking vans, bandana shirt on a fucking tank top, like, <laughs> right. That's like, a bridge I too mean, far. Co- you know what I'm saying? Like, America, you know Moons what I'm saying? But, but there, yeah, there are yeah. dudes that think that like that's how they should be operating. It's like, hey man, um, I, I spent for you. <laughs> well, I spent a, like a teeny tiny little bit of time at um, with a tier one unit and and had some friends over there. And yeah, I mean, like they wear basically whatever they want. And I was like, so like, what's like the actual policy here? And his answer was literally, "Don't fuck it up for everybody else." It was like, when you're making these decisions, just don't fuck it up for everybody else. And Unfortunately, you know, the majority of the military, like we can't operate like that um, for a lot of reasons. You know, we haven't gone through this like intense selection process. We haven't like weeded out whatever. Um, but also <laughs> on the same token is because a- another thing that goes along with that is like this feeling that like if one person uh, shits themselves, then everybody's got to wear a diaper. Right. Which again, to me is like a little bit of a, it's lazy leadership to me. And I saw that a lot. And look, that was, it was just so frustrating. It was like exactly what you're talking about, Aaron. You're like, bro, that's, I don't even know this guy. He doesn't even go here. He doesn't even right? go here. Yeah. And, and I'm getting like hammered for this. And now we're going to feel the repercussions of it when it's like, well, so when you have the individual, and, and someone wants to put out a blanket policy, what leaders need to ask themselves when they're trying to solve problems is, is it their problem to solve? You know what I mean? Because I think as you grow in rank, like you, you have a, a greater breadth of responsibility, right? And so how do you, how do you solve problems at the, the, you know, the senior leadership levels? You, you put out policies. Like that's what you do. It's, it's very not individual based. And so the first question they should be asking themselves is, is this my problem to solve? Am I, am I, solving this individual problem like is the mission being accomplished yes then is it really my problem like is this a a one-on-one conversation with someone to help them fix this problem or is it really none of my business you know like do i need a policy for this entire unit this entire organization because something happened with one person it's like oh am i you're just taking the 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 leadership away from the person that should be solving that problem if it even is a problem so like asking if you know they have all these causation correlation things but like is the if the mission is being accomplished and you're in a senior leader position, like ask yourself, is this my problem to solve? Because the tools that you have at that level are going to crush a whole bunch of other people out there that are, you know, just doing their job and, and doing the best they can. 
That's what I think. You're here to that. I <laughs> got it. So all those frustrations aside, we're going to keep going, Kyle. So, you know, you, you decided to make the move, um, you know, away from the Air Force, kind of away from the military. What was it like as you as you hit that transition process? Like, I know for for all of us, we're really close. We're all, you know, except for Peaches, who's going to be, you know, a command wing super duper chief somewhere else. <laughs> uh, you know, Trent and I are, are so super close to getting out. We're, we're feeling you know, the stress of that transition. And, you know, there's, yeah. there's always you know, some days where you feel lost. There's some days where you're like, you know, I'm unsure of the future. As you made that transition, what was, uh, you know, what, what was your, your goal in mind as you were moving through, like on to the next thing? Like, did you know what you wanted to do or did you have a path forward or, or how did that work out? Well, I think you're not alone in that feeling of like intrepidation as you approach separating from service, whether it's retirement or getting out early. I mean, like I said, I, I mean, from the time I was, my first coherent thought was probably I'm going to join the military. Right. And then I don't know if you did some math, but I did not do 20 years in the military. So that became like kind of an identity, a little bit of an identity change in crisis when I started to realize like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do this for my whole life. Um, I think like there's some other things that I want to do with my life. Cause I just, want to do other things. Um, and then it was, the, it was the last deployment in 2021. Um, I, I kind of was like toying with the idea. Okay. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to bail on this, um, finish this deployment, which was super epic. And then I think I'm going to move on. But let me tell you, I read a book, um, by Brene Brown. I don't know if you guys are familiar with old Brene, but oh, yeah. she yeah. is awesome. Um, and I believe the book was Dare to Lead, but I read like all of her books that summer. Um, anywho, and she was talking about, it was really beautiful. She was talking about how you really have to narrow down your core values, right? And which sounds really easy to do, but so she gives you like three pages, two or three columns, and it's like everything that it could be, right? And she's like, just go through and like circle all the ones that sound good. Sweet. Now cut that in half. Sweet. Now cut that in half again. Sweet. Now pick the two, two maybe three that are the most important to you. And the reason why that was so important to do was because she was like, number one, it just helps you like have a guiding light, you know, and, and understand yourself a little bit better. But what it also does is it allows you, you know, sometimes the hardest decisions are like choosing between good and really good or great and great or bad and yeah, you know? And what it does is it allows you to take these kind of core values and then, so you, you do your pro con list, you do all that stuff. And then it allows you, it allowed me at least to do that and then bring in my core values and be like, now I'm going to make a decision based on that. So even if like, ultimately, like it wasn't the most profitable decision or the ultimate best one, um, I still felt good about it because I was very true to myself. Right. So I, what I had done to make the decision you know, I decided I was getting out, had some like personal life circumstances that I was like, okay, I am, I am ready to do this. Now, what am I going to do? Well, I had heard about SkillBridge, which is awesome, uh, which we can, I mean, we could talk about that forever. Mm -hmm. And what I had also done is I had thought about the jobs that I had done when I wasn't flying, you know, like my additional duties or whatever, my, my desk job, um, and which ones I loved and which ones I hated. I loved exercise planning. I had so much fun exercise planning 
you know, teams would come in and I got to host and problem solve and network and coordinate and kind of be the hero and strategize. And, and then wait a second, you, you like exercise planning. You're a psychopath. (laughs) Like did anybody like that? I I thought you were going somewhere completely there. I thought that was sarcastic. You actually like it. Oh my God. We found the one, we found the one guy. (laughs) Well, what's funny is like, I didn't really like the planning side of it. I like the execution side of it, but, and it, and it was more so it just made me feel um, it kind of like hit like my core characteristics, which were those things and like engaging with people and, and all that. And then right after that, I went to another job where I was literally just like an Excel uh, manager. All I did was manage this Excel spreadsheet and there was like no human interaction. It was like, yes or no, manually fill out this thing. And so like that helped me get rid of like so many things that I was like, I, I would hate that. And so then I, I looked at real estate and I had always been interested in real estate. I had you know, done a little bit of real estate investing, whatever. And I was like, man, this kind of sounds like it would kind of fit those strategizing and networking and problem solving and being the hero and, you know, all those things. And uh, so then we, I like called a friend and I was like, Hey, could we like set up a skill bridge at your broker? She's like, I don't even know what that means, but yeah, talk to the CEO. And so we did that, um, set it up in like the fall of 2021 going into the beginning of 2022, which is when they changed their policy and have now like kind of, in some sense, uh, OSD is kind of like ruined some things about it. It's just like getting programs approved and stuff like that. But anyway, so we were like right at the beginning of that. And then I was, that was the way for me to transition. I don't think I would have had the guts truthfully, uh, to try to get into real estate. Had I not had the skill bridge program, because like you go from a salary job to a commission job, you go from aviation and combat and then like, not that right. Like the total opposite. And it really gave me, I mean, I did it for about five months, but for those that don't know, you can do skill bridge for up to, to six months. And it really gave me this opportunity in a really like pretty safe and protected space to like try something. And I'm so glad that I did because I've never been happier. I mean, I, I, I love this job. Man, that's awesome. And that's exactly what Skillbridge is supposed to do. So for people that aren't, aren't tracking, you know, we're not going to go too deep into it. Maybe we'll, we'll hit it deeper in a a different podcast, but Skillbridge is essentially for transitioning, uh, air force. It's actually for all DOD members, but they'll give you six months of time to do exactly what Kyle's describing. You get to go to an approved program and work. Maybe, you know, it can be in a related field. It can be in a different field, but it's, it's that the bridge, the literal skill bridge, like they're giving you skills to transition to civilian life. Uh, Great program. It's amazing. Everybody should take advantage of it. And it's something you can do as Kyle said, after one enlistment or after a full 20 years of service. So it's, it's awesome. So as you moved into that, that new space, right, you're, you're literally starting to spread your wings and getting into, into real estate and stuff. Um, what were some challenges that you faced there and, and how much of it, mm. what, like, were, uh, how much of what you faced, did you already know how to navigate thanks to your military service? Cause there's always, people always ask us like, well, what can I do after getting out of AFSPEC war or getting out of special operations? And we're like, well, the sky's the limit because you have all yeah. these tools to fix different problems. You just don't know it. People always want this answer. Like, well, what can a PJ do after the military? What can a special reconnaissance guy do afterwards? And we're like, there's, there's no equivalent, but the sky's the limit. You can do whatever, like what tools did you already have? from the military that you applied uh, to help you be successful in the real estate space? 
Okay. I love this question because obviously- Thanks, me too, but it's because I'm a narcissist. (laughs) (laughs) I love this question because it was what I asked myself every day from the, once the little seed was in my head of like, you're going to get out or maybe I'm going to, it was like, yeah, but what am I going to do? Because same problem, I- run a sensor in the back of a plane and I shoot big guns at people. There's not a lot of civilian jobs that do that. And so it was like, uh, yeah, how, how am I going to navigate that? Um, it's probably some guys in Mexico that would hire you. Oh no, for sure. Like, like the dudes in the cartel, like, I see no the border, cartel. Like, yeah. drones. like, Oh my gosh, dude, that might be able to get me back in. But anyway, um, you know, what's, what was interesting though, is like, as I started going through it, I started realizing that it was some of the um, soft skills that I had developed and practiced and exercised. So, and it, and it doesn't sound super compelling, right? It really doesn't because you feel like everybody has these skills, right? And like, especially if you have like an ounce of humility, you see other people and you're like, oh man, like, I feel like that guy's got it all squared away. I'm like, man, I gotta like work on my stuff. But some of those soft skills that I have identified since is like decision-making, like the ability to just make a decision and eat the consequences, right? And take some action. Um, The ability to um, manage your own time and training, right? Like my, my own personal development for my business when I don't have a bunch of clients that I'm working with right? It's like, what am I doing in that downtime? It's the same as like, what are you doing when you're not flying or when you're not on an exercise or at an Emerald Warrior or whatever? It's like, you're, you're preparing for the big game. Um, it, it, it's a lesson that generally speaking, Cass teaches you, right? Is that, and, and also like the same things with, you know, being a PJ and, and whatever, is that like game time is not the time to learn your TTPs, Right. Like that time has passed. Now it's time to execute. And really it kind of puts you to the test and that ability, to, like just that core understanding that that's how I have to operate and take advantage of quote unquote downtime. Um, that's been one of the most, one of the biggest translators. And I think there is something to be said about America 2023, you know, we're really fortunate to not be in a society like post Vietnam where veterans were kind of like scoffed at and scorned at, right? Like there's a lot of respect, um, especially nowadays for the soft community. And it doesn't mean that we just go out and abuse it. And it's just like, well, you should hire me because I was in special operations or whatever. No, but- you shouldn't necessarily do that just right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. Real that one resume right now. But that being said, but but that being said, there's a reason that people look at us. And I started to feel it very quickly, you know, after I got here was I was like, oh, I operate at a different pace. I operate at a different level. I operate at a different level of independence. And I'm going to speak specifically to soft people right now um, because I run our SkillBridge program and I see the difference, not even just soft people, but people in really combat arms. Um, I see the difference when people come in and that was not their background. Right. And it, it doesn't translate. So like those skills that, you know, when you're just getting beat down and, 
in pipeline or selection or in combat or in ARs or in debriefs or whatever it is, they really are leading to like the development of you as a human. And I think ultimately have the potential to make you a more autonomous, more independent, um, better leader if you actually implement the lessons learned. And I think it's a reason why a lot of uh, veterans, especially soft veterans, lean into entrepreneurship, right? Because like, there's still this like excitement. There's this kind of like risk. There's a little bit of this danger, but it's also like when you're deployed versus being in garrison, all the little things, even like the things that you like don't really want to do, they still move the needle. And that feels so good. And that you find a lot in, uh, in, in entrepreneurship or in anything where you're kind of like running your own business or it's commission-based or whatever. Yeah, but, but that, that soft lifestyle and all the things that we've been through and, and the experiences, they, they do take a toll, right? Uh, and there, there are some things that you probably had to deal with once you got out to the other side. And, and how did you deal with some of those? You know, like we talk about like psychological and all this other thing. I'm not saying you have problems, like whatever, I, but That's what I your beard hiding, you know? <laughs> Man, it's such a, it's a, it's a complex question, but it's something that I am really, really passionate about because I've had friends affected worse than I have been. Um, you know, there's psychological damage and there's trauma that I've experienced and I've been pretty fortunate in the way that my brain just happens to be wired. Um, but it's not like that for everybody. And by the way, this is not just if you're a combat veteran, you know, this it's trauma in general for people. Um, I started getting really interested in the psychedelic assisted therapies um, I started getting interested in it uh, thanks to the prophet Joe Rogan, blessed be his name. <laughs> Our Lord and Savior. Our yeah, Lord don't worry. He, he listens to the podcast. So shout out, Joe. What's up? Yeah, yeah. Really what's up, Joe? You. Yeah, thanks for the we'll support, the man. He's, he's been one of the day ones, honestly. Like, yeah. yeah, he shoots me messages here and there, you know, basically <laughs> to tell me I asked a great question. But anyway, shout out, Joe Rogan. So, you know, he had some people on there talking about psychedelics. And then I um, listened to Sean Ryan's show and, um, you know, some of the, it, it was a tier one guy, you know, that had come on there, Marcus Capone and hearing his story and hearing um, to sum up that story in like two sentences, tier one operator, major TBI, PTSD, just like really damaged. Oh my gosh, I think I'm going to kill myself. Life is falling apart. And then like last ditch effort, his wife's like, let's try this thing. And he was like, ah, and then he goes and he does it. And it like totally transforms his life. And it's so their, their organization is called uh, vets, V E T S veterans exploring treatment solutions. Um, there's another really powerful one called heroic hearts. So vets tends to lean a little bit more towards soft and heroic hearts. It's kind of like open the doors to everybody, but with, this is what's so crazy. It's so crazy is Number one, we're seeing that this stuff actually works, right? There are actual studies being done. There's a big organization called MAPS and they're doing studies at um, Harvard and Stanford. Mm -hmm. And the results are like mind boggling. It's unbelievable how in a clinical setting, pairing it with uh, the proper integration and the proper techniques and, the, and all that stuff, like the results that it is having for these veterans. But it's so they, uh, mind-boggling that they yeah, have to go to another country. Well, th thankfully, so I want to say Kentucky 
the Kentucky Senator or Kentucky is like the first time they have $75 million earmarked to study specifically Ibogaine. So Ibogaine is a plant-based medicine. What they're finding for vets, for PTSD, for whatever, number one, it's creating new pathways in the brain that circumvent the damaged parts by PTSD. And number two, people are doing uh, an unintended secondary consequence that we just don't understand fully yet. They're having people go in for this Ibogaine treatment and afterwards they have zero desire to do long, uh, like long addiction items. They wake up the next day and they don't want to drink like 100%. They're finding it, um, for drug treatment, both fentanyl, like opioids, uh, which is why it's originating in Kentucky. People with long, like lifelong fentanyl addictions are waking up the next day and without any withdrawal symptoms at all are just turning it off and going, I don't want to do that anymore. I just feel completely different and it's snapping them out of long held addiction. So this is gaining traction across the country. Like ketamine, it takes, you know, months of treatment and you have to be guided through it. You know, some of the other psychedelic psilocybin takes, you know, guided uh, meditation and practice through the entire program. And it takes, you know, months. They're finding Ibogaine with a single treatment or sometimes two. Not only is it completely breaking addiction, but it's rewiring your neural pathways in a way that we just can't even fully understand. So it's it's actually gaining traction. It's actually getting some studies now. The first human study was approved, and I want to say $75 million got earmarked for it out of Kentucky. So it's it's crazy. And it's backed by um, you know uh, Marcus Luttrell from uh, Operation, it was Operation Red, Red Wings. Wings. Yeah, Red Wings, like the lone survivor guy. His twin brother is actually in yeah. a, a senator, and he used Ibogaine and DMT. And it completely, he's, he's like, I woke up a different person. It saved my yeah. life. It saved my marriage. It saved my brain, essentially. Well, here's what's so crazy. And I think it's something that I've just generally learned in my life um, as through personal experiences, like when I really think that I like know something and I've got a pretty strong opinion on something, give it about like four or five years and it's probably going to change. And so, um, you know, I think with the psychedelic thing, because the programming for the last 50 years has been like super negative towards psychedelics, right? Like it'll ruin you. It'll make you hallucinate and want to jump off of a building. It'll, you know, you're just going to become this like total druggie. It's basically only for Woodstock and Woodstock. Right. And nowadays it's only for EDC or something like that. Right. And it's people using it recreationally and that's bad and you shouldn't do that. But, but that's, I guess what I would invite you listener or just invite somebody to do is like, and just like, try once to just like box up those preconceived notions and listen to some of the work that's being done. Listen to, listen to that Marcus Capone story. If you want, if you want to change your opinion, right? Like this is a dude that was squared away and and he had to be convinced to go do it. And like, and it saved his life. My, I won't go into this whole story, but, uh, it was very similar. I was raised LDS. Like I said earlier, my little brother struggled basically his whole life with chronic depression, but not just depression, like OCD depressive disorder. Those are two really not good things to pair on each other. Right. And high anxiety, whatever really came was approaching a, that the scariest peak. And we ended up getting him into some ketamine therapy uh, because it was like the only thing available. Right. And it was like, uh, So we just like out of pocket paid for it. He went up and did it. 
And, but what was so interesting about it, the reason I bring it up is because prior to that, like I had been beating that war drum because I was seeing what was happening, but I was also learning about psychedelics and I had been beating that war drum and I was kind of getting like a lot of pushback specifically from my mom. Love you, mom. But it was just like, it was she so also listens to the podcast. So no big yeah. deal. Your mom and Joe Rogan. <laughs> but it's, um, there was a lot of pushback and I just remember she kind of make these sly comments or these kind of like, Oh, the psychedelics, man. but it was like, there's no way. And then as it approached a peak, the, the scariest peak um, or valley of depression. Anyway, it was like, she got to a point where she was like, I'll try anything. Right. Like, let's, I don't care what it is. Let's try it. And she saw some YouTube video where she was seeing like normal people, a plumber, you know, and, Dave down the street who had gone through ketamine assisted therapy and they were just like sharing their experience of how it helped them. And she was like, Oh, this isn't just a bunch of stoners. Right. And the, the beautiful thing to put a bow on that is well, because no politician wants to be on the wrong side of history there and uh, vote against supporting something that could be potentially life changing for the, the veteran population. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, what's the right word? Bilateral support. I can't, I don't know the actual word, but there's like support from everybody on both sides of the aisle. And so it's finally starting to get funding. It's finally starting to get traction. There's big names popping up, whether it's celebrities, um, politicians, uh, big name, you know, veterans that everybody knows like Marcus Luttrell and his brother. And it's finally starting to become this like very accepted and kind of like welcome change that really I think could change. I think it could change society as a whole if it continues down this path. Yeah. So that's veterans exploring treatment solutions and heroic hearts are two of the, the big, one. big dogs that I would look up. Yeah. I've, I've, so I'm, taking notes, right? And I got, I got the veterans one exploring treatment solutions, but it's the other one, the heroic hearts that I, that I kind of like missed. Um, so want to talk to you because you also wrote a book, which I think is an extremely challenging task. In fact, when I, when I think about writing a book, I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm probably good (laughs) there. I'll just talk. Uh, unless I have voice dictation or something like that. And then I, okay, maybe I could write a book, but I, I just, talk. So, um, tell us about your book. Yeah. Um, well, it's not a very exciting book. <laughs> it's not like, that's not the way not to sell like, it. You gotta, you gotta start yeah. over. We gotta, Ooh. we gotta go. Oh, to yeah. <laughs> we don't, we don't edit anything out, but let's, let's pretend like you asked you about it. change your life. All right. There we go. Um, sell, sell, sell my dude. Yeah. So this book is not about gun shipping. It's not about, uh, my time in service. It's, it's not about that. The reason I decided to write this book is actually, it started with just my social media. Um, Basically when I was separating, I had this idea. I was like, oh man, this will be awesome. I'm moving from New Mexico to Colorado Springs. I'll get up there. I'll use my VA loan. I'll buy a house. It was like great timing too. Um, Well, it was decent timing. (laughs) And I was like, I'll buy a house and it'll be sweet. And then I'll have another investment property and like blah, blah, blah. And then my lender He's just kind of like giggled and patted me on the head. And he was like, that's cute. That's not how that works. And I was like, why not? He was like, uh, because you have a separation date on your LES because you don't have orders there because you're not going into a similar job. And he started kind of like laying out these things. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Additionally, I was on a trip with him one time. And basically 
long story super short, he had some guy that was like separating and basically kind of did the same thing, although he was much further through the loan process. Like they had put an offer on a house already. And like he was just operating under this idea that like, oh, I've got the VA loan, which is like one of the most insane benefits of being in the military that is like so underappreciated, but it's awesome. And I was like, okay. So I started kind of doing these videos on Instagram and on the old TikTok machine so that the Chinese could learn about the VA loan as well. And they started getting huge traction because it wasn't just like, what is the VA loan? It was like, this is a gotcha. And I realized there's a lot of gotchas. You can go onto the Google machine and like go to the VA's website and it'll tell you about the VA loan. Like, sure. But like, what about these like little weird scenarios that I went from aviation to real estate? Or a pilot that's going from flying, but he's going to the airlines. Or what about an entrepreneur? How does that, or somebody that, you know, there was all these little like gotchas. So eventually I was like, okay, <laughs> like I would start getting all these DMs and people asking these questions. And I just realized um, a little bit selfishly, but I was like, man, this would be nice if I had something that I could just offer this person that was not long. You know, it's like less than 25 pages. It's written, you know, very, very simply. It's not technical. There's a bunch of charts and graphs in there and whatever, but it's really just like frequently asked questions. And before, you know, I wanted to make sure that if I was putting something out, especially if I was putting something out there with my name on it, um, that it would provide value and it wasn't just some self-aggrandizing thing or something that was just going to like waste people's time. So I sent it to a couple of my friends who are about to buy their first home. So a friend that's about to buy his first two friends that are buying their first, another guy that just in this last year closed out his first. And the feedback that I got was like, man, I wish I would have had this before. Or like, dude, this helped me understand because it's the biggest purchase of like your whole life. You know, you're spending two to $700,000 on a home and you like barely understand this thing and then how to like leverage it and leverage the opportunity. And that's what I also want to provide because, you know, if you don't retire, you don't really have any passive income. Right. So like if you can understand a little bit more about the VA loan and how you can leverage it and how you can take advantage of the opportunity that it is. Cause here's the thing is like, nobody did that for me, including my realtor who could have sold me a bunch of homes. Had I just known, had she just called me and been like, we need to talk, we're going to strategize so that you can build, so that you can change your financial future. That would have been like, so awesome. So that's really like what I've, I don't want to say dedicated my life to, but like, I have just, I really love the opportunity to talk to service members and veterans that are like, they've just never done it. Be like, yo, this is awesome. Let me hook it up. So that's how I ended up writing this little book. And uh, I'll provide you guys the link. It's just a free ebook. Like, I'm not charging anybody for it because it's like, it's all publicly available knowledge. I just happen to put it together in a better format. So you speak yeah. vet. Yeah. Yeah. You speak I don't know. vet. <laughs> you speak better. I don't know. I would have, uh, 
Yeah, I would have charged something for it, man, because that resource, having it in one place and, and you know, doing the work as a, you know, we've all bought homes on this podcast and even Trent, uh, which is surprising to everybody. He actually has purchased multiple homes in his life. So, uh, you know, that's that's a resource that, you know, I, I won't even pretend like I know the ins and outs of anything VA related, you know, the VA medical, um, you know, maze that you have to go through and, you know, the VA loans, like there's a ton of things that you've earned through your military service. And, you know, just so I, I can put it out in the world, like whether you serve 20 years or whether you serve one enlistment, that service is still valuable. Like there is no ranking of service. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you, when you earn those things, like you should be able to leverage them. So man, Kyle, it feels like yes. a good place to close. I'm going to ask you the same question that we ask every, uh, every single one of our guests. For everybody that's listening out there that's trying to do something, military service, special operations, any, any you know, flavor of, of what it is that we do, a lot, those things can feel impossible, man. So to those people that are preparing and want to get into this sort of thing, what piece of advice would you give them to help them on their journey? Oh, man. Got him. That's Joe such Rogan. a good Joe question. Rogan's like, Aaron, great question. Aaron, great question. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, uh, about digging down and figuring out my core values. Um, I think what catches a lot of people, especially in your guys's line of work, um, or just when they start entering into like difficult things like a pipeline, um, is what they're. The, you know, maybe the why is not strong enough. Maybe they're doing it for clout. Maybe they're doing it for just because it sounds cool or sounds neat or whatever. But I think um, you can really set yourself up for success in life if you take the time to dig down and like spend some time in your thoughts and in your feels and figure out what your core values are and then operate based off of that and make decisions based off of that. Because then you know that like there is truth and authenticity in what you're doing. Um, and it'll also help you identify if there's not. And it'll help you make course corrections and changes when you're like, this feels incongruent with what I project to be the highest and best version of myself, right? Now, that being said, as life goes on, I can think of a couple monumental moments in my life where who I thought I was, was revealed to me that maybe I wasn't quite that. Maybe I wasn't as good of a person or maybe I wasn't as invincible or maybe I didn't react to a scenario with the type of grace or strength that I thought that I was going to reply with. And those situations can be pretty intense and rocky pretty good. But I'll tell you, even when that happened, I was able to look back at those core values and just like assess and be like, man, but I still know who I am. I just am experiencing life and still doing some growth. So that's kind of how I would approach it. You know, the pipelines are long, whether it's the, the AFSPEC war or getting into aviation in general, or it's getting into business. If you can really narrow down like who you are and be really comfortable with yourself and that process of self-discovery um, and then ultimately stack it with a pretty solid why. I think whether you're successful or not in accomplishing that goal, you'll be successful in, like I said, staying congruent to who you are and who you're 
trying to become. Well said, man. For everybody out there, Kyle, where can they find you on the Instagrams, YouTubes, or anything else you got? Where where uh, should people look for you? Yeah. Uh, most active on the Instagram machine, at KJ Pettit, P-E-T-I-T-T. Uh, same on the old TikTok machine. Um, those are probably the two best. And then in the link in my bio, um, that's where you can get a copy of the ebook, which like I said, is free and feel free to share it with your friends. And, um, you know, I just want people to have the information. Outstanding. And if you ever move to Colorado Springs, if you ever move to Colorado Springs is where I'm at. So holler at me and we'll (laughs) grab a water. There you go. Now you know a guy. (laughs) Kyle, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for your service. We appreciate everything that you're doing. So for everybody else out there, go check out KJ Pettit over on Instagram and find his uh, his awesome free ebook. So that's a service to everybody out there. We appreciate it. Make sure to like, subscribe, follow. Feels like it's uh, time, time to close this one up. So we appreciate it. Everybody have a good one. Train hard. We will see you next time.